Did you know that during World War II, the Nazis tried to assassinate Winston Churchill with an exploding bar of chocolate? It's true. They actually did. Let me tell you the story. Think back to the time of the Second World War. Think of the situation in Europe in particular and the terrible threat that was posed by Nazi Germany. Think of the brutality of the German assaults and their hunger to gobble up more and more and more territory. All of Europe was in danger. But standing on the other shore, cigar in hand, drink in hand, scowling away, was Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Churchill had long foreseen that a re-energized Germany would pose a deep threat to Europe. He begged the British government to get ready, and they'd ignored him. But he'd been proven right. And now he was Prime Minister, and Britain and Germany were at war. And under Churchill's leadership, the British nation was mustered to a great task to defy and oppose and repel and defeat the Nazis at any cost. Churchill inspired them to this work with stirring words like this. We shall, I can't do the voice, we shall defend the island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And the Nazis wanted to take Churchill out. So in the spring of 1943, British intelligence learned of this assassination plot. I'm going to read from an article on the History Channel's website. The killer candy was cloaked in a black foil wrapper with gold lettering bearing the brand name Peter's Chocolate. Underneath the real chocolate exterior was steel and canvas. And when a piece of chocolate at the end of the bar was broken off and the canvas pulled, it activated a bomb that would explode after a seven-second delay. And British intelligence believed that Nazi secret agents were plotting to smuggle the explosive chocolate into the war cabinet and into the hands of the prime minister, who was known to have a sweet tooth. Now, thankfully, the plot was foiled. And Churchill continued to lead Britain until the Allies' ultimate victory over the Nazis. But why? Why would the Germans want to assassinate Winston Churchill? Simply put, it's because he was the leader. They hoped that if they could take out Britain's leader, the rest of the nation would crumble. British resolve would collapse and they would prove unable to complete their great task without Churchill at the head. Now today, as we look into God's word, we're going to see how Satan uses the exact same strategy against God's people. He used it back in Nehemiah's day, and he's still using it in 2021. Because he wants to see the church of Jesus Christ fail. He wants to demoralize and confuse and destroy wherever and whoever he can. And he's horribly devious. He has many cunning devices at his disposal. And we have got to understand, he has his sights set on us. On our GC. 
on our leadership and on our congregation. And his goal is to bring us down individually and as a body. Now that reality ought to sober us right up. But it shouldn't scare us. Because as we're also going to see in our passage, God has given us tools to fight back. And if we'll make use of the tools that he's given, he will enable us to prevail against the devil and all his cunning devices. So let's now turn to God's word to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're going to use one of the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, you'll find it on page 401. I'll also draw you your attention to the gray sermon outline, which is in your bulletin. You might find it a help as you follow along. But basically, here's how this sermon lays out. As we walk through the text, we're going to analyze Satan's devices and how they work. And then afterwards, we're going to consider how we can resist and overcome. Let me take a moment to set the context of today's passage. Nehemiah, you'll remember, is the Jewish governor of the Persian province of Judah. Until recently, he had a high position in the Persian court. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And yet, because of his love for his people and for the city of Jerusalem, that had moved him to ask the king for an enormous favor. He requested to the king, give me permission to return to Judah with a commission to restore Jerusalem from its ruins and rebuild its walls. And the king had agreed. So now Nehemiah's in Jerusalem. He's gotten right down to business. He's mobilized God's people to this great task of rebuilding the city wall. And they have really rallied. They have really rallied. I mean, we, we, those guys put up that, that fence in a day. They, they, they were getting together to work on that wall. They had a mind to the work. They made fantastic progress. But even so, there were significant challenges. So all the nations surrounding them, Samaria in the north, Ammon in the east, Arabia to the south, are are all extremely unhappy that Jerusalem is being restored and they're doing everything they can to oppose the work. First, they tried force. We saw in chapter 4, they planned to launch a surprise attack against the builders and kill them. But that plan failed because Nehemiah found out about it and and he organized a civil defense force to protect the builders. And so the work continued. So now the enemies are just spitting mad. And in this first part of chapter 6, Nehemiah lays out for us the raging of the enemy. Let's start by reading just verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah... That's the governors of Samaria and Ammon. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Stop right there. So first we see the enemy's intent. We see their objective. They realize that the work is nearly complete. The wall is actually all joined up around the city. There's no gaps left, except except all those city gates all the way around. They don't have their doors set up yet. That means the city remains vulnerable. But the enemy's opportunity to, to act is literally 
about to close. Because once all those doors are installed, Jerusalem will be once again a fortified city. So their intent is clear. They want to thwart the work. But how are they going to accomplish that? Well, let's think. Who's the quarterback of this building project? It's Nehemiah. He says himself, the enemies heard that I had built the wall. Now, he's not being arrogant when he says that. That's just, that's just the reality. Lots of people, of course, have been building the wall. But he's the leader. The project would not have happened if not for him. So the enemies figure that their best chance to shut down the wall building is to take the leader out. Cut off the head, the body's going to die too. And so that's why all their attacks from now on are going to be against Nehemiah himself. And now we want to examine the various cunning devices that the enemies employ. So read verses 2 through 4. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. All right, these guys have already tried a brute force assault in chapter 4. That didn't work. So now they start going for cloak and dagger stuff. It's really quite like the old Roadrunner cartoons. You remember those? So what happens? At first, Wile E. Coyote always goes for a direct approach. He just tries to outrun the Roadrunner. And of course he can't. So when that fails, then he starts breaking out all his Acme devices, right? To try and catch the Roadrunner by stealth. But of course those always fail also because the Roadrunner can outwit him. And Nehemiah is going to show himself to be just as savvy. So Sanballat and Geshem, they try and lure him out, out, out of Jerusalem to the plain of Ono near the border of, Jeru- of Judah. And they say, come on, Nehemiah, let's have a... Let's have a meeting, a governor's summit, maybe. Governor to governor to governor. What do you say? But Nehemiah knows this is a trap. Maybe they're thinking assassination. Maybe they're just thinking assault or kidnapping. But he knows they intend to do him harm. So he declines the invitation. It's diplomatic, but he's quite clever about it. He reminds them as if they needed reminding. He's a little busy right now. He's got a great work going on, and he can't really leave it. This is his way of showing to the enemies his absolute determination that the wall will be finished. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. They're persistent because they're getting desperate, they issue four of these invitations to them, to him. But he doesn't budge. He's not even going to let them distract him, let alone lure him into a trap. Now think about this first cunning device of the enemy and how Satan continues to use it today against us. Listen, if you're walking with God today, if you're seeking to obey Him and trusting in His Son and living faithfully for His kingdom and serving His church, 
you are doing a great work. And it looks a little different for each one of us, doesn't it? Right now, your great work might involve a lot of diaper changing and nose wiping to the glory of God. Or it might mean patiently, faithfully loving an unbelieving spouse or a wayward child. It might involve clinging desperately to the goodness of God over some very difficult and chronic issue. It might involve stepping out in faith to be more bold with the gospel, with your colleagues or with your classmates. It might mean starting to lead your family in simple routines of Bible reading and prayer and exercising authority over your children. It might be deciding to seek counsel to forsake a besetting sin. It might involve deciding that this year you're going to prioritize home group and you're going to participate more actively for your own good and for the good of the group. Or that you're going to seek to be generous, like BJ said last week, generous in thinking well of your brothers and sisters at RGC in all your different interactions with them. Listen, all these faithful, ordinary things, you can list a billion more. These faithful, ordinary things are things that build up the city of God. And if you're a Christian living for the kingdom, you are engaged in that great work. And the enemy wants to lure you away from it. He wants to distract you and get you to leave off the work. And then what he'd really like to do is entice you to some vulnerable spot where he has an ambush all prepared for you. He's persistent. And he's devious. And he's patient. He'll keep sending you invitation after invitation after invitation. But he intends to do you harm. So are you on the alert? Are you wise to him so that you can see through his plots and reject them? Such that when the invitation comes, you shut your ears and you say, No, I am doing a great work. Why should it stop? I cannot come down. Well, with Nehemiah, at least, the plots of harm didn't work. And so the enemy moved on to plot number two, false accusation. Read with me verses 5 through 9. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come down and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hand. So this is a nasty piece of psychological warfare here in this fifth letter. This fifth letter is an open letter 
Which means Nehemiah is supposed to understand that its contents are being shared with other people, not just with him. Perhaps many others. Word's going to get around. And the letter's just full of false accusations. They're lies, but as you can see, they're plausible lies. Oh, Nehemiah, it's so obvious. The reason you Jews are building the wall is you're getting ready to commit treason. And once you've got the city fortified, you are going to set yourself up as king. You'll get the prophets to back your claim. You're going to declare independence. We're not stupid, Nehemiah. We all know what's going on. Everybody's talking about it. Now, it would be a real shame if King Artaxerxes got to hear about this, wouldn't it? So why don't you come see me? We'll see what we can do. Let's have a nice little conversation. It's really playing dirty. Because, think about it, Nehemiah is, is operating full steam. He's going great guns. If he actually was planning to rebel and set himself up as king, he'd be doing all the same things he is doing, wouldn't he? Now just think what would happen if the other Jews got wind of what was in this open letter. They might start to wonder, man, can this be true? Is, is Nehemiah really getting ready to lead us into rebellion? And even if it's not true, What if the king hears this report and he decides it's true? Man, he'd come with all the armies and and he'd wipe us out. See, Sanballat is trying to sow doubt and fear among the Jews so that they'll second-guess their leaders and they'll get intimidated. And he's also trying to blackmail Nehemiah by making him afraid that he's going to end up getting destroyed by these false accusations. And and the goal is that everyone's going to get demoralized. They're going to give the whole thing up. Their hands will drop from the work. See, the goal is to stop the building. Now, how does Nehemiah respond to this cunning device of the enemy? He does it with courage and clear-minded thinking and trust in the Lord. So he sends back a letter to Sanballat. He says, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Just a flat denial. And then he prays, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. He can't can't stop Sanballat from making these accusations. All he can do is to trust the outcome to God. God will sort it out however he pleases, and then he gets back to work. He's got a job to do. Now, do you see how the enemy also uses this scheme against us today? This threat of being falsely accused. The worry that someone is going to twist our words. Maybe someone's going to go out on social media and try and get us canceled. Or maybe someone's going to take our profession of Christianity. Someone's going to report us to HR for hate speech. Or maybe just spread gossip and slander against our church. Oh, that church. They're a bunch of self-righteous, intolerant bigots. Now, I've got to say, we, we may not be there yet. But I think many of us are reading the signs of the times and think it could come to that before very long. And it's easy. It's easy to get intimidated. And it'd be super easy to start thinking, boy... Boy, maybe, maybe it would be better if our pastors just didn't talk about X quite so much. 
Maybe that would be better. Or maybe it would be more prudent if I just flew a little bit under the radar at work or at school. Didn't fly my flag quite so boldly. Or man, I could never share about Jesus with so-and-so. It would just be too risky. Be too risky. Or maybe I'll just preach my preach the gospel with my actions rather than my words. I'll, I'll show that I'm a Christian. I don't have to say that I'm a Christian. And maybe if they're just intrigued, they watch my life and they're intrigued, they can ask me and then I can tell them about Jesus. After all, we don't want to be branded as haters, do we? Brothers and sisters, do you see the enemy's tactic? All he has to do, all he has to do is get us intimidated enough by the threat of false accusation that we decide on our own to stop the work and shut our mouths and become nice, safe Christians who don't bother anyone and who are embarrassed by the truths in God's word that are culturally unacceptable. And then we'll never talk about real, actual sin and how God hates it, and will judge it one day with hellfire, and how all sinners who will not repent will fall under that judgment. But how he also desires to save people from sin, which is why he sent Jesus to die the awful death of the cross, to pay for sin, so that people like you and I could be forgiven from sin, but only, only if they turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel truth. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is the message you must embrace if you want to escape God's judgment and find eternal life in Jesus. That's the only message that saves It's the only message that saves, but it's out of vogue. It's out of vogue, and it's almost certainly going to get more so. And if we're not careful, we're going to get intimidated, and we're going to go silent. We'll be silent about these things. We'll be silent about the only message that can save sinners. We'll bench ourselves, and the work will drop from our hands, and we will make Satan very Very, very happy indeed. Now, Nehemiah didn't fall for this one either, did he? He just says it's not true. It's not true. He trusts himself to God, and he goes back to work. But we see the enemy has one more scheme. So pick up the reading in verse 10. Now, I went, as I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said... Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way, and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to all these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. See, the enemy's final cunning temptation device, cunning device is temptation to sin. 
So Tobiah and Sanballat hire false prophets, apparently a bunch of false prophets, to whisper more words of fear to Nehemiah so that he would be led to sin against God. So the Shemaiah, he's a prophet. He may also be a priest. He tells Nehemiah there's a plot to assassinate him by night. And he suggests Nehemiah should come with him into the temple to hide and save his life. Now what would have happened... What if Nehemiah had succumbed to this fear and listened to the guy and sought refuge inside the temple? Well, he's not a priest. He's not a priest. So it's not lawful for him to enter into the temple. What are the possible outcomes? None of them are good. Well, the Lord could strike him dead, like he did Nadab and Abihu. Or he might strike him with leprosy, like he did with King Uzziah when he tried to go into the temple. I'm sure the enemies would have been just delighted with either one of those outcomes. But maybe, maybe it would, have, would not have been that dramatic. Maybe Nehemiah would simply have been exposed as a rebel against the Lord and a coward who was willing to sin in order to save his life. What would that have done? God's blessing would have been removed from him. He would have been discredited in the sight of all the people. Any of these outcomes would have taken Nehemiah down. This is exactly what the enemies are hoping for, that he'll sin and be discredited. But again, Nehemiah sees through the wicked scheme, even when the lie comes through a so-called prophet of God. His response actually shows both reverence and humility as well as a certain proper self-respect. Should, should such a man as I do such a thing, I will not go in. I'm not going to go in. Friends, I hope you're savvy to this device of the enemies. It's, it's the most blatant. He is going to tempt you to sin. Do you, do you, do you realize that? He's just going to keep tempting you into sin. It's going to happen. He is a liar, and a very good one. He's had a lot of practice, and he will make sin look like no big deal. He will make sin look reasonable and attractive. And the obvious course of action to take, even the inevitable course of action, that's what Nehemiah could have thought. And so it's the same old story. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things... And if he can successfully lure you into sin, that will take you out. You might be taken out by by little sins, little compromises that are excused and cherished over a long period of time. Or you might be taken out all at once by some sudden and scandalous sin. But, But we must be on our guard. Let us hate sin. Hate sin. And be watchful against the temptation, no matter what the source is that the enemy chooses to use. And again, we see Nehemiah prevailed. He prevailed. He stood firm against all the raging of the enemy. 
Nimbly he avoided the traps that were set for him. And he doggedly refused to be distracted from his task. Noble heart. Let's see what he gained. Let's look at verse 15. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. That's one of the guys that built the wall. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Well, we see the work is completed despite the enemy's rage. It's a little understated, isn't it? The wall was finished. That's all he says. And in 52 days, just 52 days, they raised the entire city wall and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Even with the nations hurling everything they've got against God's people and against their leaders, the wall got done. And now we see that the tables turn. And now it's the enemy's turn to be afraid. They are dismayed, they're put to shame because they realize that all their plots have come to nothing. Surely this great thing can only have been accomplished with the help of Almighty God. And take a lesson from this also. Our enemy is not all-powerful. He can be successfully resisted. We'll consider how in just a moment. But for now, just take heart from that one fact. Satan can be resisted. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Even even when we we resist him in one, he he tacks, he goes around another way. You can see that even in Nehemiah's moment of triumph, he's still got to deal with covert opposition. This just gets more and more subtle and more crafty. It's like you're six layers down in the seven-layer dip. Because now, now it gets... Sorry, lunch, hungry. No. This is deep. Because many of the nobles of Judah are actually friends of Tobiah the Ammonite, or they're bound to him by marriage. Now, this is one of the head honcho enemies, but they have him on speed dial. They're just, they just keep trying to work their angle. I imagine it was all very congenial, very polite, but it's drip, 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 trying to erode trust in Nehemiah's leadership just trying to propose reasonable, alternative perspectives. I just wanted you to know there's actually quite a few people who feel this way. You probably encountered this kind of thing somehow. And we see that even after a great defeat, the the enemy just keeps working away. If he can't achieve this goal, he'll tack and he'll try something else which means Nehemiah has to stay watchful and keep the defenses up. So read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had all been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani 
And Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charged over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So what does Nehemiah do after his great task is complete? He goes to Bermuda. Nope. Nope. He prepares defenses against the enemy's rage because he knows the danger is still real. So he hands over significant responsibility to faithful, God-fearing men that he can trust and gives them instructions how to guard the city and keep it safe from attack. Because what you've actually got now is, is a great big city, fortified and walled, but there's not very many people living inside of it. Most of the people live outside the city. And, and spoiler alert for the rest of the book, this is going to be Nehemiah's next great task. Now that the holy city is built, how, are, how, how is it going to be filled with a holy people? That's what we'll get to in the next chapters. Well, now we've, we've walked through the passage. We've seen Nehemiah face the different cunning devices of the enemy, and we've watched him prevail. So now let's us turn and consider the question, how, how will we prevail? And in order to find the answer to that, I have to suggest to you that we need to be careful not to read ourselves into the story in the wrong way. I'll submit to you, I don't think we ought to first put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes, but rather in the shoes of one of the ordinary exiles, just one of the dudes working on the wall. I'll just pick out a family from chapter 3. Let's take Shalom, the son of Halohesh, with his daughters who worked on the wall near the Tower of the Ovens. What about them? What allowed them to stand firm? What kept them safe against the raging of the enemy while they were building? Because I think actually you and I ought to see ourselves in them. And at the end of the day, what kept them safe was their leader. It was Nehemiah, the captain and the champion. The main force of the enemy's rage was devoted and directed at him. It was he who had the real target on his back. And because he prevailed, they prevailed. And his triumph was their triumph. That's how they resisted. Through him. Once we understand that connection, we can apply this passage rightly by seeing that Nehemiah anticipates the pattern that we ultimately see fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if the enemy could take out Nehemiah, the wall project would fail. And likewise, the devil knew that if he could take out Jesus, God's whole great project of building the holy city would fail. If he could defeat Jesus, all hope for the redemption of sinners would be utterly lost. If Jesus failed, Satan would keep every single one of his captives. No sinner would escape his clutches. And, that, and so all through his life, Jesus was the primary target of all of the devil's furious rage. He used the very same tactics that he used against Nehemiah. 
He plotted him harm at every turn, seeking to destroy Jesus before the appointed time. Think Herod at his infancy. He wanted to destroy Jesus before the appointed time so that he could thwart the plan. And then all through Jesus' ministry, especially in that last climactic week, Satan worked through all the wicked leaders and lying witnesses and brought all sorts of false accusations against the Lord Jesus. But of course, his most concerted effort was devoted to getting Jesus to sin by tempting him to turn away, turn aside from his great work. And so right at the beginning of his ministry, there in the wilderness, he tried to get Jesus to turn away from the path of suffering that the Father had laid out for him. Three times he tried to divert Jesus from the way of the cross. But then at the very end... At the very end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am convinced Satan was hard at work in that hour of Jesus' agony, trying desperately to get him to just abandon the task. And if that moment, if Jesus had failed, all of us would have been utterly lost. Everything depends on this. But our great captain fought, and he struggled, and he wept, and he prayed, and he sweat blood, and he wrestled in prayer, and he prevailed. And so his answer to the Father was, not my will, but thy will be done. He did not give in to Satan's temptation even for a moment, because he was determined to finish the great work of our redemption. And then on the cross, I think when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and he breathed his last, I think the devil probably began to shake. Because when he heard those words, he probably suspected that he might have failed. But then three days later, he knew it for certain when Jesus' bruised heel walked out of that grave and crushed his wicked head. And Jesus has gained the victory. He's gained it for himself. He's gained it for us as well. But he's not done. He's not totally dead yet. He's mostly dead, but he's not all the way dead He's been dealt a mortal blow. But we know from Revelation 12 that when Jesus was caught up to the throne of God in triumph, the devil tacked, tacked hard. He can't get at Jesus anymore. Now he rages against the church and he makes war against her offspring, the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony about Jesus. And he is enraged because he knows that he's going down and he knows that his time is short. That That should sober you. Because we need to be really, really careful. We need to listen to the whole witness of the New Testament. Because there's two things that are true. Two things are true. Number one, Jesus is the church's great champion. And he has won the victory for her. And so she will overcome despite all the devil's schemes. That is a promise. Jesus will build his church The gates of hell will not prevail against her. The walls of Jerusalem will be built. This is absolute certainty. No question. Jesus' triumph secures the church's triumph. That is true. Praise God, that is true. But, on the other hand, Satan says, uh, sorry, not Satan, Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in his rage, he puts all 
forward all of his most cunning devices, and his objective is to bring down individual Christians, to bring down individual local churches. He can't win in the big picture, but he can do a lot of damage in the little picture. And that means he's targeting Redeeming Grace Church. And he's targeting each one of us. Because while the church cannot fail, the church cannot fail, we could fail. We could fail. You know that. You know who has an especially big target on his back? That man sitting right there. Why is that? Because under Jesus, BJ is the lead under-shepherd here at RGC. And just as in Nehemiah's day, if the enemy's intent is to thwart the work, what better way to take down our flock than to take down the leader? And you know stories from other churches. You know what kind of havoc Satan could wreak in our church if BJ were to fall whether he fell into sin or fell into some serious doctrinal error. God protect him. Jesus protect him. Are we praying for our pastor? Are we praying for our church and for one another and for ourselves that we will not fall? Because to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Many warnings of Scripture compel us to understand this. God's overarching promise is not a guarantee that you as an individual, or RGC as an individual church, or BJ as an individual pastor, won't become a statistic. I know you all know people that this has happened to, and so do I. Folks who seemed to be following Jesus, but who either did not watch their life carefully or they did not watch their doctrine carefully, and they're no longer following Jesus. And the devil keeps coming after the church. He already came after Jesus, who didn't fall. He's coming after BJ, who could fall. He's coming after you, and you could fall. That's not to scare you. That's not to scare you. The answer isn't to be in despair as if Satan were the victor. He's not. Jesus is victor. But the answer is to fight and to trust and to pray and to use every means at our disposal that God has given us to resist the devil and to resist his schemes because he can successfully be resisted. He can. Listen to these promises. Romans 16, 19. Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. He's crushed under Jesus' feet. He'll soon be crushed under our feet. What's the means? That's a great means to resist. Intentionally pursue obedience and reject what is evil. 1 Peter 5 again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like that roaring lion seeking someone to devour him. Resist him. 
Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's a means to resist. Being on guard, staying on guard, staying watchful, rather than being presumptuous and lazy in our pursuit of Christ. James 4, 6-8. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See, there's a means to resist. Humility and drawing close to God. See, it's true. Satan would absolutely love to see RGC become an embarrassing byword in Georgia, Vermont. He would love to see us, one by one, fall away from faithfulness to Christ and to his mission. But it does not have to be this way. It does not. Let us determine, let us covenant together before God that by God's grace, this will not be us. And let's resist him together with the means of faithfulness and obedience and prayer and watchfulness. Because there's all the hope in the world. There's all the hope in the world. Because of Jesus' victory, we can trust that we will prevail if we resist the devil He will flee from us. RGC will prevail. Even little old you, little old me, will prevail. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Isn't that right? There's hope. Let's stand fast. Let's pray. Lord, oh, now strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands. Let the work not drop from our hands. May we prove faithful by clinging to the gospel, by clinging to the promises, by staying close to Jesus, by staying close to one another. Lord, let us prevail. Let our pastor prevail. May he triumph. And may we share in the fruit of him triumphing. He's, he's just an under-shepherd, Lord, but he's vulnerable because he's out in front. Lord, protect him and protect us all. And for my unbelieving friends who aren't even in the game, who Satan already has deceived and led captive and are languishing in his dungeons, Father, I pray that you would free them by the power of the gospel. Lord, allow them to triumph through faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen our hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.